came and you lived among us. You took on our frame, on the corrupting our pain. Now you're taking us higher. You stepped into time. You laid down your life to took all our shame on the cross it was laid and taking us higher we go from glory to glory to glory we'll never be the same we'll never be the same we go from glory to glory to glory we are forever changed forever change you call me your friend brought into your endless kingdom by the blood I was made no longer a slave and now you're taking us higher we go from glory to Glory to glory, never be the same. We'll never be the same. Glory to glory to glory, we're forever changed. We're forever changed. And when we reach that day, love conquers every. Take us higher and higher and higher. We're forever. 
somebody this morning.
thinking about this morning, I was thinking about this, this verse in Acts chapter 10, which is a great summary of the ministry of Jesus. Um, this is the apostles speaking. You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And what really struck me about that was the fact that, um, you know, he, he goes about, he goes about, you know, here in the Great Commission, we're called to, as you go, as you go. And Jesus says, I'm going to be with you always, even at the end of the age. Here's, here's a summation of Jesus' ministry as he went about. He went about doing good. He went about doing miraculous things. And so part of the privilege that we have as followers of Jesus is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to have the opportunity of doing supernatural things. So I think just as we begin our time in worship, I'd just like for us to pray. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be silent here. I want you to pray that God would fill you with his Holy Spirit. It's a great time to do that. We're supposed to do that every day, right? But this is a good time to do it on a Sunday morning. Just say, God, please, please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Please fill me with your Spirit. You, you do that right now. Holy Spirit, we, uh, we welcome your powerful presence. We welcome your power in us to do ministry. You empowered the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to do good and to heal and to make a difference in people's lives. You've called us to be about the task of doing good, being involved in supernatural endeavors, helping people. Holy Spirit, we can't do this apart from you. We can try, but it's not going to have the spiritual dynamic that we, we so desire. So Holy Spirit, will you fill us and will you empower us to do things in this city that transform lives? That's what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you uh, are here this morning and God has answered a prayer, we invite you to light a candle to celebrate that answered prayer. Or maybe you have a prayer that you're persevering on and you're, you're waiting on God to answer that prayer. You can also come and light a candle and just celebrate the fact that God is good even though that prayer may not have been answered yet.
this morning. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to praise your name, God. We thank you for your spirit that's invaded this place, Lord. I pray that it's pierced our hearts. Father, I pray that you would just make us ready for whatever it is you have for us this morning, Lord, that we would just be flexible this morning, Lord, and let you teach us what you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Hey, welcome to Grace. Really glad that you're here today. I want to ask the ushers to come and take uh, the offering. I've got several announcements. Uh, first of all, we've got a baptism coming up uh, next week, July the 22nd, after the second service. 
If you have not been baptized and you would like to be baptized, we would invite you to call our office. You can call Sean Conrad and just let him know that you're interested in being baptized. Uh, that'll be this coming week on the 22nd. Also, Ed Schmidt's uh, class is, um, on spiritual gifts is also starting next week. Uh, all of Ed's classes are really good. This one is particularly good. It's on spiritual gifts, and uh, I just think this is a great time. If you know, you're going through the summer, you're thinking about maybe rekindling some of the ways that you serve God, uh, this would be a great class to get into as he's talking about, about the spiritual gifts. Also, I, I want to make this announcement about our worship team. You remember last week I had mentioned that we're in a bit of a transition with our worship team right now. Uh, Jake is on a leave of absence for some time. And so um, Sarah Schmidt, uh, sorry, 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 Sarah Stogner is the one who is going to be um, our coordinating our worship team. And we are looking for some new faces in the worship team. Um, and we're looking in five areas, bass, electric guitar, keyboard, vocalist, drummer, Sarah happens to be a music teacher, and so um, even if you don't feel like you have the caliber of, um, to plan a Sunday morning, uh, there may be some times where maybe you want to come and just play and with the worship team and, uh, and kind, of, kind of see what it would be like to be, to, to be doing that. So uh, we'd love to explore that further. Uh, okay, so we're going to be in John chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 45 this morning. And I'm going to ask Joshua Easley to come, and he is going to um, tell the story. Josh, come on up. Uh, Josh is a missionary with YWAM who's been working in various parts of the world uh, in some of the Pacific Rim countries like the Philippines. And as you know, most of the world does not, is not highly literate, and so most of the world is depending upon stories. And Josh is an amazing storyteller who has uh, memorized entire books of the New Testament, and he tells them in story form. So Josh is going is to tell the story of the raising of Lazarus before I open up the scriptures and teach on it. Now, a man named Lazarus was very sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Martha and Mary. Now, this was the same Mary who would later anoint Jesus' feet and wipe them with her hair. Now, their brother was very sick. And so the sisters sent a message to Jesus saying, Your dear friend is very sick. And when Jesus received the message, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. Now, this happened so the glory of God could be seen and that the Son of Man will receive glory from it. And so even though he loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea. And his disciples said, teacher, the last time you were in Judea, the people there were trying to stone you. Are you really trying to go back there? And Jesus said, our dear friend Lazarus is, very, is asleep, and I must go wake him up. They said, teacher, if he's asleep, he'll get better soon. They said this because they thought that Jesus meant that he was merely sleeping, but Jesus meant that Lazarus had died. And so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes, I am glad I wasn't there, because now you will really believe. Come, let's go and see him. And then Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to the other disciples, let's go too, and die with Jesus. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he received a report that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. 
Now, Bethany was only a few miles away from Jerusalem, and so many people had come from Jerusalem to Bethany to mourn with Martha and Mary. Now, Martha heard that Jesus was coming. She immediately went to go see him, but Martha stayed where she was. When Martha came to Jesus, she said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask him. And so Jesus said, I tell you the truth, your brother will rise again. And she said, yes, Lord, he will rise again with everyone else on the last day. Then Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live after dying. And everyone who believes in me will never, ever die. Don't you believe this, Martha? And she said, yes, Lord, I do believe. I have always believed you are the Messiah sent from God. And so she went to get Mary. She took her aside from those who were mourning, and she said, the teacher is here, and he wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to go see him. Now Jesus had stayed outside the village where he had met Martha. Now when those who had come down to Bethany to weep with them saw her leave so hastily, they assumed that she was going to the tomb of Lazarus to weep there, and so they followed her. When Mary got to Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and saw those that were wailing with her, a deep anger rose within him, and he was deeply troubled. And he said, where have you put him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. And some of them said, look at how much he loved him. But then others said, he healed a blind man. Couldn't he have prevented Lazarus from dying? Now Jesus was still angry when he went to the tomb, which was a cave with a stone rolled in front of the entrance. And he said, roll the stone away from the entrance. But Martha, the sister of the dead man, protested. She said, Lord, he has already been in the grave for four days. The smell will be terrible. And Jesus said, didn't I say that you would see God's glory if you just believed? And so they rolled the stone away from the entrance. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud so that everyone here will know that you sent me. And then he said to the tomb, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out. His hands and his feet were bound in grave clothes, and his face was wrapped in a headcloth. And he said, untie him and let him go. And many who were with Mary believed in Jesus because of what had happened. Amen. Thank you. So this morning we're going to talk about suffering and the great I am. I want to take you back to the late 1930s to Oxford, England. Back then, the storm clouds of war were gathering over Europe, driven by the relentless aggressions of Adolf Hitler. And people all over Europe were struggling and anxious about their survival. People in England were especially anxious about their survival. And people were asking the question, where is God in the face of suffering? Well, in June of 1939, uh, Ashley Sampson from the Centenary Press in London 
contacted C.S. Lewis. Uh, Ashley Sampson had read C.S. Lewis's two books, The Pilgrim's Regress and Out of the Silent Planet. He said, Lewis is a very, very capable writer, very creative writer. I wonder if he would write a book on the problem of pain as Europe is approaching war in 1939-1940. C.S. Lewis uh, had an objection to writing a book on the problem of pain. He says, he says uh, I, I have not suffered much. Who am I to write a book on the problem of pain? And Lewis uh, said this, I was never fool enough to suppose myself qualified to write on suffering, nor have I anything to offer my readers except my conviction. That when pain is to be born, a little courage helps more than much knowledge, a little human sympathy more than much courage, and the least tincture of the love of God more than them all. That's how we started. And then he writes this amazing book on the problem of pain and a Christian understanding and response to it. So here I am this morning, um, going to speak to you on suffering and the great I am. And I, I, as I read this passage, I realized... I am not the most qualified person in the room to speak on this because although I have gone through the school of hard knocks like many of you have, I have not suffered terribly. In fact, Josh and I have this little running banter uh, about the fact that whenever I have a passage on suffering, I give it to him. <laughs> and he does a great job. But this one's on me this morning. Um, I want to talk to you about how to respond properly to God in the face of suffering. I want you to notice right off the bat that this is a very, in fact, I would say exceptionally well-written, all of John is well-written, but this is a particularly well-written passage, because this story is bookended by virtually the same statement. Uh, in John 10.42, it says, many believed in him there, and then in John 11.45, it says, many of the Jews believed in him. So you have two bookend verses in this, well, two chapters, 10 and 11, and in the middle is the story of the raising of Lazarus, and it's a story about the confusion and pain that comes with suffering and death. And so it's pretty clear what the topic of this story is. The topic statement is, well, believing in God in the midst of pain, suffering, heartache, and death. How do we do that? How does that happen? I think that would be relevant to, to all of us here because we've all gone through times where we, we've encountered suffering, heartache, pain, and death. And that's what this chapter is all about. How, how do you respond to those things in the right way? Now, I just want to say briefly that this is where I just love the Christian faith because, you know, you look out at it at all the belief systems around the world, there are five major world religions, there are five major world philosophies, there are less than a dozen major belief systems around the world, less than a dozen. And many of those dozen are, are not as well known to us in the West. But there are three common responses to suffering. Response number one says, suffering does not exist. Suffering does not exist. Suffering is an illusion. Common response number two is suffering exists, but God doesn't. The reality of suffering means that God does not exist. He's not real. And option number three is that God 
does exist, God is good, and suffering does exist, and suffering is bad, and God triumphed over suffering and the work that Jesus did on the cross. And this chapter is a wonderful preview of that, of that reality. So we start with the story, the raising of Lazarus in John 11, 1 through 45. Here's the background. Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that he, John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. I don't, want to, I don't want to pass over this too quickly because John is doing something to heighten the tension here. Uh, they were trying to kill Jesus. So Jesus and his disciples leave Jerusalem. Now, think about what that meant. What that meant was they cross over the Kidron Valley. They join up with the Jericho Road. They walk up over the Mount of Olives, and they walk 17 miles of bleak, dusty, dangerous road to get to Jericho. They stop in Jericho, and they slurp water by the river because they were thirsty, and then they walk another several miles to where John the Baptist had been baptizing. And while they're there, everything is going great. Jesus isn't baptizing personally, but his disciples are, and many are coming to Christ. It's great. It's wonderful. And then Jesus gets handed a note, and the note the note is only five words in the original language. And the note says, Jesus, the one whom you love is seriously ill. Love Mary and Martha. Now he, re- he reads this and he realizes immediately what they're asking. What they're saying is, he's on his deathbed you better get here quick. Like, you're his good friend. You better get here quick. This is a a desperate plea for help. Now comes the confusion because Jesus responds in a way that seems very strange to us. In fact, I would say the next 13 verses are extraordinarily confusing, and I could explain them to you to make them a bit clearer, but I'm telling you, John, the gospel writer, is writing these intentionally to heighten the confusion that is going on with the disciples. Let's start with the confusing decision that Jesus made. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he rushed to her side, his side. That's what you expect. He took the first taxi he could find. He called up Uber. Uber got there. They raced to the hospital. That's what you'd expect. That didn't happen. It says uh, when he heard he was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he he was. That's, That's just a very confusing decision. My grandfather died at the age of 96, and uh, it was back in 1996. And when I got the phone call that he was dying, I got on a plane and I flew down to Naples, Florida. We were there for several days and my dad and I went back to uh, my parents' house and, and while my mom spent, spent the night by my grandfather's side and we got the phone call early the next morning, um, you better come quick. And I, I got into the car that 
I was driving there and I rushed to the hospital. Now, let's just suppose that my mom had called me, you, you, you better come quick. And I didn't show up for four hours. And my mom said, where, where, where have you been? Well, I went to the Starbucks and they screwed up my order. I asked for a latte, they gave me cappuccino. I asked for hazelnut, they gave me raspberry. And then I saw the, the New York Times, the front page article, and I, I just sat there. But I'm here now. Like, how would that have gone over with my mother? Not good. No, because, you know, when you love somebody, you expect those who are with you, who love you, to, to, to come by your side, and Jesus didn't do that. And that was extraordinarily confusing to Mary and Martha. And I, I you know, I... I, I know that John says that Jesus loved Mary and Martha, but Mary and Martha did not know that he wasn't coming. They expected him to show up at, at any minute. All they knew was that their brother, their brother was dead and Jesus didn't show up. And John is intentionally trying to heighten the confusion. Then the confusion gets worse because after two days, Jesus announces to the disciples that they're, they're headed back to Jerusalem. That means they're headed right back into the lion's den of criticism and persecution and potentially death. The disciples are worried about their safety, so Jesus tells a brief parable. It goes right over their head. Jesus gives them another figure of speech saying, Lazarus is asleep. Like, what? What do you mean he's asleep? That goes right over their head. And Jesus finally tells them plainly that Lazarus is dead and that they're headed to his grave. But even the way he explains this is confusing to them because it sounds like they're going to go see him, but he's dead. So in what sense are they going to see him? And what I'm saying is that John is writing this story intentionally to highlight the confusion. I know a lot of biblical scholars who say, well, we're going we're gonna to sort through this confusion, we're going to figure this out, we're going to make this plain, but I'm telling you, from a literary standpoint, John wants us to feel the tension and feel the confusion for one reason, and the reason is, that's how we feel when we encounter heartache, pain, affliction, suffering, and death. We feel disappointed confused. Why didn't God show up the way we expected him to show up? John makes us feel that in the way that he, the way that he, he writes this. Now, let me pause from this story for a second, just tell you something that I've learned in, in the midst of, the, of pain. Now, the thing I've learned is this, God often seems to show up late. Okay, Think about that for a second. That sounds confusing, it sounds weird, and it sounds wrong. But here's, this has been my experience and the experience of a lot of people that I've talked to. God seems as if he shows up late, late. So you, you, you see that um, in the parting of the Red Sea. Um, think about the people of Israel, they go out into the wilderness, and there they are out in the wilderness, and there's the Red Sea on one side and the Egyptian army on the other side. The Egyptian army is galloping toward them. They have no weapons. They have no strength. They have no power. And now they're between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, 
and the Egyptian army is coming, and they're doomed. And then what happens? God parts the Red Sea. And from the standpoint of the, of the Israelites, it seems as if God showed up at the very last minute. That is so common in the scriptures, and it's so common in life. It seems to us as if God shows up late. See, the same thing in Psalm 22, which is a prophetic psalm about Jesus being on the cross. And prophetically, what the psalm writer is, is, uh, is, per, is he's likening death to being gored by a wild ox. And it's as if the wild ox of death is about ready to bend his head into Jesus, puncturing skin, ripping muscle, crushing bone. He's about ready to rip into Jesus. And then in Psalm 22, it says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. The way this is written in the original language is like, just when I thought I was going to get gored, you rescued me. And prophetically speaking, this psalm is saying, God showed up at the last minute, rescuing Jesus to resurrection. I've talked to many, many people who've said, man, I was praying about this. I was praying that God would help. And it seems as if God showed up at the last minute. Now, why would God do that? Why would he do that? Well, the reason why is that sometimes we need that space of confusion. Because what that space of confusion does is that space of confusion makes us ask, what do I really trust in? Who do I really depend upon when life gets difficult? If I, if I prayed and God instantly answered my prayer every single time, I would never have to confront myself about my own unbelief. And that space of confusion is God saying, I love you, and I want you to sit in this space of confusion, and I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me when there's no solution. I want you to trust me when there's no good outcome. I want you to trust me. I want you to depend upon me. I want you to wait on me. Sometimes it's a sign of God's blessing that he allows that space of confusion. I have had at least two and probably half a dozen major times in my life where God seemed to show up late. One time we were, we were hunting for a house in Baltimore. We had to find the house. We had one more hour to find the house. And at the last minute, God provided a house for us to get in Baltimore. We were moving to Baltimore. And you, you know what my emotions were? My emotions were, God, yes, you're amazing. You're amazing. Why was my emotion of joy heightened? Because I had to confront myself in the space of that confusion. Sometimes that is a, that is a huge blessing. So how then do we respond well, we see the first response in Mary's and Martha's response. Martha, you know, she rushes down the hill from Bethany down to see Jesus and the disciples. Jesus and the disciples have walked back up toward Jerusalem. Martha rushes down there. Martha says, Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. If you read between the lines, she's scolding Jesus a little bit. She's scolding him. She's going to give a piece of her mind to Jesus. If you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. 
Read between the lines, she's saying, wish you would have hurried it up, because he's gone now. And if you'd have been here, uh, he, would, he would not have died. You could have prevented it. Jesus now builds up her faith, and he says, Martha, your brother is going to rise again. Now, the Jews did not have a clear understanding of resurrection like we do. And so I want you to notice what happens with Martha. Martha's response is primarily an intellectual response. It's born out of faith, for sure, but it's primarily an intellectual response. See, the only clear reference to resurrection that we have in the Old Testament, there's a number of allusions to it. There's a number of, of hints about it. Obviously, we have Enoch. We've got Elijah. But the clear reference is Daniel 12, too. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. The Jews took that verse and they constructed an idea about resurrection based upon that verse. And, and Martha is saying, I believe in that. I know my brother will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I know that. I believe in that. Her faith is primarily in intellectual faith. So now Jesus does something incredibly. He gives now the fifth I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This fifth I am statement says, Martha, I am God, and I am the one who has the power over life and death. What he's saying in effect is, look, eternal life, before it's a place toward which you go, is a person in whom you believe. Eternal life is for sure a place, but first and foremost, it's a person who can bring us to that place and bring us to that experience. It's a declaration of, of his deity. It's a declaration of what he will do toward those who believe. And I love what Jesus does next. He says, Martha, do you, do you believe in this? And Martha steps it up. She says, yes, Lord, I've come to believe that you are the Messiah, the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the great prophet Moses predicted who had come into the world. Martha, with beautiful confidence, confesses that she is a true follower of Christ. But notice how she begins. She begins her faith in the context of suffering with an intellectual declaration based upon God's Word. That's where, that's where she, she starts. So what do you learn from Martha? What you learn from Martha is this, when you encounter suffering, tragedy, heartache, pain, and death, you have to start with what you know objectively from God's Word about what is true. Now, I know to people who are struggling and who are in grief, sometimes that sounds cold and clinical and objective. I want something emotion to, emotionally to comfort me in my grief. But the Martha response is a crucial response. It's the response that says, look, I don't care what I see around me. What I'm going to depend upon first is what I know objectively from the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures say? And I'm going to rely upon God's goodness in the face of that. And here's where I think God's grace kicks in, because I've talked to many people who were hit with a devastating trial, and here's what they said. They've said, when I focused on a particular 
passage of Scripture, God gave me a phrase which was my, my anchor and my rock. And that phrase, that brief phrase, was the thing that got me through. I talked to one person who said they went through a really hard setback. And God gave him the phrase out of Job 121. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. They repeated that over and over again a hundred times, 500 times, a thousand times. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that phrase became the rock that was their gateway into confidence in God. That's the intellectual response. It's intellectual because it focuses first upon God's word. Now comes the emotional response. And the emotional response is the Mary response. So Martha, having, having confessed her faith in Jesus, she goes back to the house. She goes back to Mary, who's sitting in the house with the mourners. And she says to Mary, Mary, the teacher is calling for you. He wants you to come to him. How cool would that be? You know, if, if somebody came into your house and says, hey, Jesus is outside. He wants to talk to you. Like, yeah, really? I'm, I'm going. Martha invites Mary to go down and be in the presence of God. So Mary goes down, and Mary's attitude is markedly different than Martha's attitude. And when she comes near to Jesus, she doesn't, she doesn't have her hand on her hips, she doesn't talk angrily toward Jesus. She gets down on her knees and then down on her face, and an attitude of worship, she says, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. That's how powerful you are. That's how strong you are. That's how amazing you are. It's as stated as worship. Lord, if you'd have been here, man, my brother would not have died. That's how great and amazing you are. Now think about the difference in these, two in these two responses because these two responses are very different. Martha confesses biblical truth, Daniel 12, verse 2. Mary enters into Jesus' presence. You remember that Jesus had said in John 10, 10, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Martha confesses biblical truth. Mary enters into Jesus' presence. Martha nourishes herself on the objective truth of God's Word, Mary nourishes herself on the spiritual presence of Jesus, lingering in, in His presence, enjoying His presence, worshiping in, in His presence. And I want you to notice that Jesus immediately fellowships with Mary. And this is, this is such, a, such a cool fellowship. Jesus enters into the emotion of the situation. J Jesus says, okay, where, where have you laid Him? And I think Jesus feels the tears welling up in his eyes. Where have you laid him? And they march over to where the grave plot was, except it wasn't really totally a grave plot. What it was was a burial cliff, a carved out limestone cave. In that cave, they buried the dead after having anointed the dead. He goes to that place. There's a big stone over that grave. You see the big stone there rolled away from the grave, but the stone would have been on top of the grave. 
And Jesus is there with the mourners, and Jesus bursts into tears. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. So with Martha, Jesus encourages her by gently nudging her toward faith. With Mary, Jesus enters into the emotion, entering into, into her pain. Now, I, I, I want you to think a little bit more about this Mary, Mary Martha response. The Martha response is clinging to biblical truth. The Mary response is clinging to the person of Jesus. And both responses are crucial. Both are crucial. And what's important about both these, both these responses is that the intellectual response is sort of our anchor. The emotional response heals, heals our, our soul. How did, Mary, how did Mary enter into that emotional response? She did it through worship. And that's what we have the opportunity to do as well. In the face of grief and suffering and pain, we can do our grief work in the context of of worship. Remember a really just emotional scene back in 1998 because Cindy's dad died unexpectedly at the age of 71. And I got a call from my office. And I rushed home. I went upstairs. When I found Cindy, she was on her knees by our bed praying. And I've often thought about that. Her response in the face of being hit by this tragedy was to get on her knees and to pray. And it wasn't because she was such a spiritual person necessarily. It was just like she was sent to her knees in grief, calling out to the only person who could enter into that grief and provide hope. That's the, that's the Mary response. Let's go back to the story. I'm sure most of you know what, what comes next. Jesus raises Lazarus. Um, I want you to imagine that Jesus is with all the mourners on the face of the cave. Go back to this cave here. He's by all the mourners at the face of this cave. And Jesus says something that would have been unbelievably awkward. Remove the stone. Awkward. Awkward. Like, like you think about that, they go from grief into like, what? What, what are you even talking about? I mean, they didn't embalm bodies back then the way they do now, you know, where, where they stay looking normal for a while at least. I mean, in Middle Eastern culture, they bodies decayed very quickly. Well, Jesus, what, what, what are you doing? What do you mean remove this stone? I mean, I mean, the corpse is going to have been in a state of decay. They can't imagine him going and somehow grotesquely handling a dead body. Remove the stone. Martha pipes up and, and she says so. And so Jesus uh, insists. They roll the stone away. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. He didn't need to use a loud voice, but he, but he did, I think, to make, uh, to make a, a point to demonstrate that he was the resurrection and the life. Lazarus, come forth. And I want you to look at that image on the screens and just imagine the voice going out 
Lazarus come forth and there's, there's nothing that they see in the cave for five seconds, nothing that they see maybe for seven seconds. Then after about 10 seconds, they see movement in the grave. And then they see this form looking for all the world like an Egyptian mummy hobbling out of the grave, bending over, hobbling out of the grave. And, th- and there he is, there's Lazarus. And if you're there, you're thinking, but what happens when they unwind the strips of cloth? He says, unbind him and let him go. They begin to unbind the strips of cloth, and there's Lazarus not looking like a decayed corpse, but looking 15 years younger than he had looked before he died, looking healthy and looking, I think, probably with a smile on his face. I'm back. Uh, There had to have been massive emotion of this crowd going from grief to awkwardness. No, don't remove the stone. Now to, what are we going to find when we unbind him? To Lazarus. Their emotions are all over the map. And now we come to the second bookend. Many of the Jews believed in him. Yeah, I mean, if I were there, I would have said, yes, I believe, Jesus, you are indeed the resurrection and the life. What an amazing story. But here's the question. What what is the core significance of this story? Well, at its core, this is a story about how we respond in the face of heartache and pain. What do we do? Well, here's the deal. You know, whenever whenever you suffer, you got expectations. Everybody has expectations. And here's the expectation of Mary and Martha. They write this note. Lord, the one whom you love, our brother Lazarus, is really sick. Please come quickly. And what was their expectation? Jesus would come very quickly. Mary and Martha had expectations. And you have expectations anytime you encounter suffering, heartache, grief, and pain. And your expectation is, I want God's intervention now. I'm in pain. I'm grieving. This pain seems too much to bear. God, I want your intervention right now. Please, please give me your intervention. If that intervention does not come immediately, there are times where we look at God and we say, look, God, I'm a a mom. I'm a dad. And if my child were suffering terribly, I would move to that little child's side. I would alleviate their pain and suffering. I'm your child. You're my father. Please alleviate my pain and my suffering. If that doesn't happen immediately, we get, we get distressed about that. And so that leads us to, okay, what is the right response then to suffering? Well, the right response is the combined response of Mary and Martha together. That's the right response, is that combined response of Mary and Martha together. You start with the Martha response. The Martha response is, I'm going to affirm truth. The truth is, Jesus is the Son of God. The truth is that Jesus is the Messiah. The truth is that He's the resurrection and the life. The truth is that He's the source of abundant life, and because I'm rightly related to Him, I can hope for His intervening grace. That's the, that's the Martha response. I rely upon objective biblical truth. I open up the scriptures. I rely on that truth. So my mom, uh, about 10 days ago, had a stroke while I was talking with her on the phone. 
And my mom had been memorizing Isaiah 41.10. Don't be anxious. Don't anxiously look around you, for I am your God. I will uphold you. I will strengthen you. My mom had been memorizing that. That's like going through my mom's mind like over and over again, and she's going to the hospital. I called my mom yesterday. She said, Rod, I feel like a miracle has taken place because I, I have, I'm 100%. I'm tired. I'm really tired, but like I have no residual effects. She said, I got to tell you, it was, it was Isaiah 41.10 that God gave to me over and over and over and over and over again as I was going through this. Isaiah 41.10. She was depending upon, that's the Martha response. It's depending upon the word. Uh, then we go to the Mary response, and the Mary response is engage in worship and praise. Worship with your body. I, I, I want you to envision Mary on her knees and then on her face before Jesus, worshiping him, saying, Lord, you're so great and powerful. You've been here. My brother would not have died. That's how great you are. You're the resurrection and the life. The Mary response is the emotional response. You seek His presence. You seek His tangible, abiding ministry. You seek that. You depend upon that. You dwell in that. You, you marinate in the presence of God. The Martha response is how you begin. Then you go to the Mary response, but we got to go back again to the Martha response because the Martha response in 1122, we passed over this before, is this. Jesus, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, here's the thing. When she said this back in verse 22, she was not necessarily thinking about resurrection. She was thinking about some undefined surprise solution. She was not necessarily thinking resurrection. Otherwise, she wouldn't have said, Lord, don't roll the stone away. Oh, it's, it's going to be a smell. But here's what Martha was doing. She was realizing that Jesus is all-powerful. There could be some sort of a surprise solution, right? So here's the pattern about dealing with heartache, suffering, trials, and pain. You start with truth. You pursue His presence. You seek His surprise solution. You start with truth. You pursue His presence. You seek His surprise solution. That's the paradigm. If you look at those three statements and you, you go backward through what you see in the rest of the Bible, including the Old Testament, what you realize is a lot of people did that exact same thing. They start with truth. They pursue His presence. They seek His surprise solution. Even though it was messy, this is the pattern that Elijah made when he was pursued by the evil Queen Jezebel. So back to the main idea key idea of John 10, 40 through 11, 45. When I respond to suffering with intellectual, intellectual faith and by seeking Jesus' existential presence, God can work in surprising ways, even moving me and others toward deeper belief. I've talked to a number of people who've said to me, hey, look, even though my loved one died, gosh, God has brought good out of that horrible tragedy. I can say that now. Couldn't say that at the time, but I can say that. I can say that now. So let me give you some takeaways, some thoughts on responding to God and suffering. 
Takeaway number one is this. When you struggle with pain, start with honesty and affirmation at the same time. That's what, that's what Martha did. She started with honesty and affirmation. Honesty. If you'd have been here, Jesus, and I'm kind of ticked off you weren't, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. That's honesty. That's just an honest, raw emotion of anger in the face of grief. And yet, there's affirmation. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he'll give it to you. Honesty, affirmation at the same time. Look, if you read the Psalms, there is a a kind of a psalm called an individual lament psalm. Roughly 56 56 of the 150 psalms are individual lament psalms. Those psalms include honesty and affirmation, sometimes in the same verse. It's okay to approach God that way, honestly and yet also affirming the truth about who God is. Honesty and affirmation. That's takeaway number one. Takeaway number two is create a space in your mind for God's surprise solution. Create a space in your mind for God's surprise solution. She created a space in her mind for God's surprise solution. Now, could God's surprise solution be resurrection? It's possible. Possible. Guy on the left is Chauncey Crandall. He's a Palm Beach medical doctor. He, uh, wrote in a peer-reviewed academic medical journal article a story about a guy who had been clinically dead for over an hour. And uh, he prayed over this guy, and the heart began to beat again. Now, that happened only once in that guy's guy's work as a physician. Obviously, it's going to be very rare. The case of this guy... This African soccer player is, is particularly amazing. His name was Fabrice, Fabrice Muamba, and he was playing uh, for the Tottenham Court team in London, and he was clinically dead for 90 minutes. And his African teammates who believed in healing prayer prayed for him, and his heart came back after 90 minutes. Is it possible that that could be a surprise solution? Of course it's possible. God's big, he's powerful, and there are cases where this happens. But extraordinarily rare. Extraordinarily rare. But God's surprise solution may be, may be, that he provides you with a level of improvement when you go through heartache, pain, suffering, and trials a level of improvement that is so surprising to you that you look at that improvement and you say, that, that is God's dramatic intervention, his dramatic intervention. There's a guy um, by the name of J.P. Moreland who is a really the premier Christian philosopher in the country. He's written like 90 books, lives in the L.A. area, and uh, he is a firm believer in healing prayer, has, does it all the time. I love it. There's there's a philosopher who is a well-written, well-published uh, philosopher who believes in healing prayer. J.P. Moreland does. But Moreland has, has uh, three forms of cancer. One is the rarest form of skin cancer documented in the medical journals. He said, believe me, we prayed. That solution has not come yet. But he said, here's, here's what did happen. What did happen is this, he says, quote, in what should have been the darkest period of my life, I experienced the most profound peace I have ever encountered. 
Like this was a transformative piece, a piece in which he says, I feel alive to God. I feel alive to my family. I feel alive to my students in a way that I've never felt alive before. That was God's surprise solution to J.P. Moreland. And he said, in addition to that, he said, I also happen to write a 1,000-page book that is being published by Oxford University Press. He says, God's surprise solution for J.P. Moreland was that he would, he would feel peace and that he would be productive. Who knows what a surprise solution will be? Third takeaway is to anticipate your personal resurrection. Uh, we're commanded to do this. Beloved, we are God's children, John says, and what will happen, what, uh, what we will be has not yet appeared, but when we, sorry, I'm talking way too fast, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who hopes in this and purifies himself as he is pure. The point is, if you focus on your personal resurrection, there is a purifying part of that that's really important to you. That's why Paul says, set your mind, <clears throat> minds on things above. And he says, uh, when you will, uh, <clears throat> you will also appear with him in glory. Look, it's important for us to anticipate the fact that death, our death, does not end our life. Far from it. Our death is a gateway into the life to come. That's our hope, and we purify ourselves as we meditate on this. And then fourth, make the big ask. Whatever you want, ask for it. Jesus says, you know, he says that in this passage. Ask. In the face of tragedy, ask. So let me tell you, I'll t tell you a story. I want to tell you a story, uh, close with a story about Kim Fook. Kim Fook has been nicknamed the Napalm Girl. You've seen this picture on the screens. I'm giving it to you so it doesn't shock you too much. But this is the story about the girl who was part of a bombing in Vietnam in 1972. Her village was bombed, and she was badly burned over her body. In fact, the bombing came, the fire from the bomb came, the fire chased her, it enveloped her, it burned her clothes off, and then began to burn her skin. Kim Fook today is a grandmother and has a cute little grandchild. So what happened between the time of the bomb and obviously a happy grandmother? What happened, what happened during that time? Well, <clears throat> she had 17 surgeries in 17 months when she was nine years old. She said, you know, I was nine, but I felt like I was like 19. My life was so dark. I had so many questions. Why am I still alive? What's the purpose of my life? My life is so dark. What's going on? Kim sought God. She sought the God of Buddhism. Then she sought the God of the Bible. And on Christmas Eve, 20 years after her horrible incident, 20 years, she, uh, she came to Christ, and she and her husband received political asylum in Canada. She began to speak all over the world about her story, and she held up the picture to speak about the story. 
And she, would, she told about the difference that Jesus made in her life, and here's what she says. She says, quote, that picture defined my life. That picture gave me a mission, a ministry, and a cause. She says, quote, I thank God for that picture. I thank God for everything, even for that road, especially for that road, especially for that road. If God can provide that kind of comfort and purpose after that kind of tragedy, God can do anything. Again, here's the main idea. When I respond to my suffering with intellectual faith and by seeking Jesus' presence, God can work in surprising ways, ways that go beyond what I ever would have expected. Let's stand for a closing prayer, and um, our elder, uh, Paul Gustafson, is going to come, and he's going to pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sharing your presence, your peace with us this morning in fellowship. We thank you for the good news of the message that you delivered through Josh Easley and Pastor Rod. Thank you, Jesus, that you promised us you would never leave us nor forsake us, that you leave with us today as we go back to our home, back to our workplace, with our circumstances. And from the message today, to ask the Holy Spirit, whom we ask to fill us already this morning, to give us a new perspective, new perspective, a supernatural perspective, one where Jesus rules and reigns over the circumstances. Father, we lift up our hurts, our fears, our pain to you, trusting that Jesus will command the stone be rolled away and that his glory will redeem our situation as it is in heaven. Thank you. God bless.